This is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about international business strategy and globalization and how companies big and small are innovating and adapting to the ever-changing competitive environment at home and abroad. In each program we interview a person from another country or with strong connections to another country to get their unique perspective on globalization as it has affected them in their life, their work and their business. There's a little bit of history, a dash of economics, a sprinkling of business and an overview of personal experience, both for me and for my interviewees from around the world. Today, we will be talking to Amanda Satilli, a business consultant based in Atlanta, Georgia, who works with major corporate clients across multiple sectors. In Amanda's work, she provides strategic direction to her clients' endeavors through a concept that she has developed called strategic agility. And we will be asking her a bit more about the concept of strategic agility in a few minutes. Amanda's professional career stretches back to the early days when she worked as a project engineer with Kimberly Clark. Later, she worked with the consultancy McKinsey and spent some considerable time in Southeast Asia. She started her own consultancy in 1998 and lists Walmart, Delta Airlines, Home Depot and UPS among her clients. She is the author of two business books, The Agility Advantage and the recently published Fearless Growth and we will be finding out more about that presently as well. I'm delighted to have Amanda join me on the line today from Atlanta, Georgia to talk about her business, her writing and her thinking on strategy and how it will be shaped in the future in the aftermath of the coronavirus. Welcome Amanda and thank you very much for being here with us today. Thank you Patrick, I'm looking forward to it. Great to have you, Amanda. Uh, first off, um, here in Ireland, we're quite familiar with the U.S., but we tend to be more familiar with places, say, in the Northeast, you know, Boston and, and New York, and maybe Florida also. And then uh, on the West Coast, we're familiar with that as well. And Atlanta is one of these places that, you know, we kind of route through on the way to other places. So could you situate Atlanta for us maybe on the map? where it is, how big it is, and what it's like in terms of climate and population diversity and so on. Um, Georgia is in the southeast, so we have some ocean and we have mountains and we have a lot of agricultural space. And we're number eight by population out of the 50 states in the U.S., so what's the economy like in Atlanta these days? I know in recent decades, it's become a major transportation hub and an economic powerhouse in, in many ways. So what are the main industries and what well-known uh, companies are associated with, with, with Atlanta? We have a lot of Fortune 500 companies here. Um, some of the big industries are logistics and travel. We have UPS, we have Delta. Um, we have the U.S. arm of IHG that owns Holiday Inn and Intercontinental. Um, we have a lot of financial technology and payments companies. So we have mm -hmm. uh, big parts of Pfizer First Data. We have Equifax, NCR, uh, a number of other payments companies. We have a lot of communication and media. So AT the big piece of AT&T is here, and they own CNN and Turner Broadcasting, uh, which were founded here. Uh, we also have Cox Communications and Weather Channel here mm -hmm. in that category. There's actually a ton of um, like fast food. Um, so Arby's, <laughs> Chick-fil-A, Waffle House, Church's Fried Chicken, a lot of fried chicken. Uh, and then, of course, we have consumer and retail. So the big ones there are Coke and Home Depot, but um, also uh, Georgia Pacific, Newell Rubbermaid in that category. So we have a pretty pretty diverse economy, and then some technology like uh, Mailchimp and Cisco. It's a great economy and has been booming for a long time. 
Is Coca-Cola's historical home in Atlanta? Yes, it was founded here. So you've been running your own consultancy business, uh, Tilly, since 1998, and we'll come back to that presently. But for now, could you tell us a little bit about your career up to the point that you founded um, uh, your consultancy business? And uh, actually, I understand you spent some considerable time in Asia. Is that so? So I started out as an engineer. I worked for Kimberly Clark in consumer products, so making uh, components of baby diapers like Huggies. And um, then went to Harvard Business School. And when I left there, I came to work for McKinsey, first in Atlanta and then in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Uh, So that was a great experience. And we were there for four years. And during that time, I also worked for as an executive for a high tech startup called Asia Connect, which was this was way back in the early days of the Internet. So we had a lot of the biggest clients in Malaysia, like, uh, you know, the airline and the newspaper and the social security system and things like that. And then moved back to Atlanta and again was a executive with a high-tech startup called Global Food Exchange, which was founded with some other ex-McKinsey folks. And um, started up Satillion Associates about 20 years ago. So we've been really um, excited to, to play that role for the last 20 years. What did you take away from your time and experience in Asia, both on a personal level and on a professional level, that maybe you wouldn't have had had you not been there? It was totally fascinating. I mean, you just learn so much about how people think differently than you, but, you know, have their own heritage and reasons for thinking the way that they think. I think it really helps you to be much more empathetic and much more able to obviously operate in a global economy, but also just to understand the people that you're interacting with every day in regular life. Um, We actually had two of our kids born there, uh, which really adds another dimension because you get to understand more about uh, how people raise their kids. And um, that's really different from country to country. Yeah, it plugs you in in a different way, maybe when your kids are growing up and going to school or kindergarten and so on. Right. Coming back then to your own business. So what do you what do you do there? Who do you do it for? And in what ways are your clients condition improved after working with you? Yeah, so um, we really serve companies who are large and very successful and have gotten very, very good at doing what they do. And yet they're being hit with a fast changing market. So this, um, you know, if you think about it, uh, UPS is an example, they're very, very efficient, very good at what they do, but things are changing fast. You know, e-commerce is growing so fast. Amazon is changing the world. Um, the, the way people communicate with and what their expectations are changing. That's just one example, but nearly every company that we're working with is being hit up with changes in consumer behavior, changes in customer expectations, changes in technology, um, changes in just the way the world economy works that um, are forcing them to be much more agile, much more adept and to make faster decisions. And that's where we really uh, tend to get involved. And this concept of strategic agility is interesting. You've, you've written this book, The Agility Advantage, in which you developed a concept of strategic agility. What does this concept actually entail? Yeah, so I really break it down into three pieces, market agility, decision agility, and execution agility. And market agility is really the ability to just see what's going on out there and to be able to anticipate what might happen next. It's surprising 
how often that doesn't happen. Uh, decision agility is the ability to take those facts, see what's, you know, take what's going to happen and say, well, how can we turn this into an opportunity? What can we create out of this? How can we respond to this in the most effective way? And what action should we take first to be able to start moving on that opportunity? And execution agility is the ability to execute on that opportunity while still staying flexible to further changes in the market. So that's all about how to really enlist your employees so that every employee is on the lookout every day for things that are changing and is able to adapt on the fly and feel empowered to be able to deliver on um, the big picture, the big purpose. Interesting. So but both you and I trained as engineers, you as a chemical engineer and I as a mechanical engineer, and now we both work with our clients on, on business strategy. So how has being an engineer helped or hindered your transma- transformation uh, into a business consultant working on strategy with clients? <laughs> That's a good question. How has it helped and how has it hindered? The help has been... Uh, uh, quite uh, a bit of help because I think in your engineering training, you are always getting hit up with problems where you just, you know, you're baffled. It's very complex. You don't understand. You're looking at it just thinking, I don't have any idea how to solve this. And then you write down what you know and you, you know, begin to pick away at it until finally you solve the problem. So you get very comfortable with problem solving and become kind of a, a lover of, of solving problems. So that's, I still use those skills every day. That's super helpful. But it's interesting that you ask about hinder because I think that um, one of the problems that you develop as an engineer is you you get to the right answer and it's one right answer. And in the real world, there's not one right answer. And there's many different ways of coming at it. And logic is not always the way that make people make decisions. And yet you still need to work with those people and figure out how you can um, convince them or come over to their side of the table and help them implement what they think is the right answer. So, um, I think that it is a help and it is a hindrance, but I, I am very happy that I started out my career in that field. Currently, are you working internationally from the base in Atlanta? Well, all of my clients tend to be international. So yes, in that respect. So I do, you know, have clients all over the world and talk with them. I don't, actually have to travel that much internationally because a lot of my business is helping through advisory, helping them think through problems, helping them organize the way that they look at strategic problems. And so um, some of that can be done um, through Zoom or or calls or whatever, which now we're all getting used to under the COVID (laughs) uh, social distancing policies. Yes. So we are right in the middle of the coronavirus crisis at the moment. And as we record this, we don't really know uh, where things are headed. So in in Atlanta, what is the current uh, response to to COVID-19? And how is it affecting your client, your clients now in the day to day? And how do you think it will affect them for the rest of the year and in the aftermath of the crisis? Uh, well, there will definitely be a really big economic impact. Um, so, as far as what's happening in Atlanta, we have only a moderate amount of cases, but we have implemented social distancing over the last couple of weeks, and it is helping. So, the rate rates of new infection are coming down quite a bit. Um, but some of our biggest companies, like Delta, have you know, had huge impacts. They've had to cut many of their flights. They're furloughing people uh, or asking them to take a voluntary pay, 
voluntary time off. And um, so it's a dramatic impact on many of our industries. Um, on the other hand, companies like UPS are having to continue to ship and deliver even more than what they used to. And they're having to figure out how to keep their employees and their customers safe in that environment. So um, it's working both ways. And then you take an example like Home Depot that's based in Atlanta. They've uh, decided to shut their stores at 6 p.m. every day instead of the 9 p.m. that they used to so that they can clean up the stores and sanitize them and keep everyone safe. And I'm sure that they're having a, a change in the types of products that they're supplying, you know, more sanitation and gardening supplies maybe and less uh, uh, of other things. Um it's, it's a strange world. And then we've got uh, AT&T and Cox Communications, people that are supplying information. You know, CNN is based in Atlanta. Um, so they're seeing an increased need for their services. So it's all over the map. Um, you know, it's just a lot of change fast. And it's really remarkable and um, impressive to see how fast people have been able to change in this environment. Mm -hmm. Yes, here we're seeing some sectors are up and uh, some sectors are down. Probably the four sectors that I'm seeing here that are up are uh, food production and uh, processing, uh, pharmaceuticals, medical devices, and then logistics services that tie the whole thing together. So one of the things that we've been doing in, in our business actually is um, we've been busy connecting people through our network, people who have complementary needs. And that's been working quite well because everybody seems to be mobilized and everybody is, is helping out. And in many ways, it's like that famous quote from Dickens' uh, Tale of Two Cities. Uh, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Right. Right. I think it's a time, it's certainly a time that we will all remember for the rest of our lives. And I can imagine that the people who are young right now, this is just going to shape the way they think, you know, it's really going to shape um, the way they think for the rest of their lives, for sure. Mm -hmm. You know, in some ways, I think, while not wanting to minimize the gravity of the situation, that a global pandemic uh, like this could have been a much more aggressive illness. So while this illness no doubt is a killer, it's mild in comparison to what might have happened, what might have been. So maybe we're actually getting a wake-up call here for the future. Yeah, a little warning. On a wider perspective, then, we've seen this economic globalization advance over the last four or five years to give us this global economy that we've um, we've become accustomed to with, you know, international links and global supply chains. And there has been some reaction to this. Um, we've seen rising protectionism in, in recent years, um, nationalism, trade war, trade wars, and so on. And now we have on top of that, the coronavirus. So in your opinion, how do you think all of this will shape the world of tomorrow for business? And how will it be different uh, in the future from what we've become used to over the last 20 years or so? Um, well, there's, there's good things and there's bad things. I mean, I think that the sense of international collaboration and um, trying to do the right thing is probably at a peak right now. I think that in some ways we're seeing the best of, of the other countries. Um, so that's a good thing. I think that um, there will be more focus on national and even state um, self-sufficiency in terms of food, energy, medicine, and things like that. We won't, we won't want to have these extremely efficient, but very, you know, um, in a way risky supply chains 
will be willing to take a little bit less efficiency for greater self-sufficiency and greater uh, redundancy, greater safety stock and inventory and things like that. I think that people will probably, the, the idea of risk planning and business continuity will have a little bit more respect than it used to. And it might even, you know, draw, it'll draw more creativity and more thinking and people will be more interested in working on that. Um, obviously, remote work is going to be way more in the future than now because we've all had to figure out how to do it and we're getting comfortable with it and it's easy and it makes sense and um, it's efficient. So I think that will increase. I hope that we'll still continue to work in physical spaces together because I think that's where really great work gets done. And then I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens, for instance, with employment contracts. Um, You know, I think that people are going to be more... um, more um, focused, or at least at the, you know, the, the wage earner type levels, the, the hourly workers are going to be more focused on managing their risk and do they get sick pay and what happens if there's a, a, a business disruption. Um, same thing with supply contracts. I think supply contracts will have more contingencies and SLAs, uh, service level agreements built in for uh, disruptive type events. You work a lot on strategy with your clients, and it's it's been my experience uh, working on strategy with, with, with my clients that there's often a tension between the development side of strategy and the implementation side of strategy. So the development side is a more expansive, creative activity, whereas the implementation side tends to be a more type of planning and execution type set of activities uh, uh, in the day-to-day. Um, h- how, do you, how do you view this and how do you see this manifest in, in your own work with your clients? Well, I think that, um, you know, it sometimes is hard to get people's attention to really think about strategic questions because strategic questions tend to be a little bit farther in the future, require more investment and are more different than what you're doing today. And the fact is, is that because we've been so focused on efficiency for decades, um, the day-to-day takes a lot of our mind space. Just running what we're running is overwhelming many times. And so I think that um, the things that prevent good strategy development from happening are the fact that our identity, skills, and mindset is all very bound to what we have been doing and what we're doing right now. So the ability to imagine a different future is a little bit different when your brain is 100% taken up with just managing today. Um, The other stress, stress points, I think, are that there is a financial tendency to focus on the short term. We're all looking at quarterly earnings. It's very difficult to get you know, investors to tolerate investing for the future. Uh, They want to see the numbers now. I think that incentives tend to be, or they are uh, focused on making your numbers this quarter. They're not focused on investing for the future. And so incentives almost always tend to pull you back into what you're doing now rather rather than investing in strategically. And then the organizational structures are typically not oriented to what you need to do next. They're typically oriented to what you've been doing. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot of forces that tend to pull companies into what they're doing now. And um, you need to manage those very carefully to be able to not upset the core, you know, 
cash-producing engine of your company while still being able to figure out what you're going to do next and be experimenting and building those new businesses and those new trajectories for growth. So structurally, we've set ourselves up against strategic thinking in, in a way, and so much so that many of us have actually forgotten how to be creative and how to think about the future in an expansive way. Would you, would you agree with that? Well, I do agree with that. But even even if you can get the time and the mental energy and the imagination to to set the new strategy, the execution is very difficult because you're having to free up resources, people, money, mindset, everything to be able to do something that doesn't contribute to your current uh, you know quarter's financial results and is very different from what you've done before and actually doesn't even mesh with your personal identity. I mean, people have been trained over the years to do one thing and they get their hands slapped if they, you know, veer out of that lane too much. And so um, being able to do something different is often very difficult for folks. And so it's the execution that's more of the problem than the coming up with the strategy. So they fail more in the execution than in the formulation. Yeah. So your most recent book, um, Fearless Growth, that's that's a recent publication? 2017. And what's the, what's the premise of that book? Yeah. So um, when I wrote The Agility Advantage, many companies were coming to me asking, how can we be more agile? And what we found was many of these problems that we just talked about um, were, were what were keeping them back. So companies were having trouble in managing in uncertain environments. They were having trouble truly empowering their employees. They were having trouble uh, partnering effectively. And so fearless growth is really about how to give up control to gain control. So doing more in terms of, you know, partnering more, sharing more information, um, you know, using your whole ecosystem to buoy your um, company better, um, getting comfortable with uncertainty, getting comfortable with risk, um, adapting to a learning mindset and setting learning goals as opposed to just financial goals, um, empowering your employees more, building a culture of trust. So it has more to do with kind of the organizational um, building blocks of being able to be agile and fast moving um, strategically. So as we enter into the uh, the final straight here of the interview, we might just change uh, gears slightly and uh, focus a little bit more on you as an individual. So when you're not working in your business or on your business, what kind of things do you like to do in your discretionary time, in your free time? Um, so my husband and I are fanatics about kiteboarding. I think they do that in Ireland. Yes, they do. It's pretty windy here. That's super fun. And we spend a lot of time doing that. Um, I also like a lot of other water sports, um, competitive water skiing and sailboat racing and things like that. I love to hike. And my new recent uh, hobby is organic vegetable gardening because I want (laughs) to go to the grocery less often. And so I'm figuring out what grows well here in Georgia and have been uh, digging a lot of holes. (laughs) I'm sure a lot of stuff grows really well in Georgia because it gets quite warm, right? Yeah. And we have a lot of rain, too. Luckily, I'm very thankful for that. We have a lot of rain and a lot of sun. Lately, have you read anything that inspired you um, that you would recommend to our listeners? Uh, Well, a fun book to read, which I didn't actually read recently, but I I really 
uh, is one of my favorite books, is by Peter Drucker, who's a well-known business author. But this is more of a personal memoir, and it's called Adventures of a Bystander. And it's just about his life and all the fascinating people that he knew and brushed up against and his outlook. Every paragraph is fascinating. Um, a book that I've read much more recently is Nine Lies About Work by Marcus Buckingham, this, um, the guy from Gallup, Strengths Finder guy, mm-hmm. and also with, uh, with Ashley Goodall. And uh, it's just really interesting. He takes a lot of things that we take for granted, like cascading uh, goals down the organization or performance reviews, and just says, we haven't been thinking about this right. We should be doing it totally differently. Um, So I've really enjoyed that book as well. So he takes a contrarian position on many of the things we take for granted in business. Is that so? Yeah. And it's Kind of like you, you look at it and you go, you know, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> so it's good yeah. to see it validated with research. He has a lot of research um, to back up his views, which I think are very helpful. Excellent. Very interesting. So how can people find out more about you and your work, uh, your thinking, your business, your books and so on, web, social media, etc.? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn under Amanda Satili, S-E-T-I-L-I, and um, I love interacting with people all over the world there and, and blog frequently, um, so that's a great place to connect. Satili.com um, is a place where you can find frameworks, videos, blog posts, uh, more info about my books, more info about how we work and some of the work that we've done, and uh, so I encourage you to go there to find more information. And uh, just uh, literally get in touch. I'm easy to find. Um, my email is amanda at satili.com. And uh, you can find my phone number on the website. And I uh, would love to talk if there's any business problem that uh, people are interested in exploring together. Excellent. And that, that surname, Satili, what's the origin of that surname? Uh the relatives are in Germany. Uh, it does sound sort of Italian, but I think it's mm. actually German. Well, Amanda, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today, and I wish you the very, very best for the future, both personally and professionally. Thank you, Patrick. It's been fun. Thanks also to all of our listeners. And remember that if you would like to know more about how I can help you to formulate and implement international business strategies that deliver, check out my blog on albalogistics.com, my Twitter on hashtag albalogistics, or pick up my book, International Supply Chain Relationships, on Amazon, Google Books, or Apple Books. Thank you for listening and keep well until the next time.